Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up-to-date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. We are continuing our series on the Psalms this summer. Last week, uh, we discussed uh, a Psalm of Lament and what it means to lament, and how it's actually a good and healthy practice in our faith to bring our sadness, our anger, our frustrations to the Lord, to, instead of dealing with them in unhealthy ways, actually walk with God through those things. And whereas you think being angry and sad at God might be bad for your faith, it's actually good for your faith, and it actually builds your faith. Uh, But today we're going to swing it to the other end, and we're going to be talking about Um, being excited, the emotions of excitement and uh, of celebration, of celebration, because I believe that the Psalms are the soundtrack of the Bible, and what I mean by that is they are the musical, the poetic, and the emotional expression of what the rest of the Bible communicates in different ways. The rest of the Bible communicates it through stories, through lessons, through theology, But the Psalms do it through music and poetry and engaging with us emotionally. And so there's a lot we can learn from the Psalms in our own faith, how we can worship and pray uh, using our emotions as kind of a tool to connect with God and engage with God in in a really special way. And so like I said, last week we looked at engaging with God through those emotions of sadness Um, and anger, but this week we're going to engage with him emotionally through excitement and through the occasion of celebration, because a lot of the psalms we're going to see actually are written for certain purposes. They're written for certain times and occasions in one's life, or maybe throughout the year, and they're oftentimes written for festivals to celebrate certain actions or historical moments where God has performed something, And they're meant to engage with not just our thoughts, but our experiences, right? And and the ways in which we've experienced God and kind of communicate with him through that. And I think it's really neat that actually today is a holiday, right? It's a holiday that we celebrate. Um, It's the 4th of July, and for Americans, we celebrate freedom, independence. Uh, We celebrate just all the America and general values there. And we celebrate it in a lot of different ways. We cook out, we hang out with friends and family, and I think kind of the quintessential thing is the fireworks, right? Uh, Maybe you've already gone and seen some fireworks this weekend, maybe you're going to go see some fireworks. Whether you like it or not, at home, quietly, you're going to hear fireworks off in the distance, whether you like them or don't like them. Apparently, I didn't realize that people have strong opinions about fireworks, but I guess that's social media now. Everyone's opinion is out there. Um, And so there's a lot of ways that we express and celebrate the 4th of July, and even though we, we oftentimes associate maybe like Christmas with Christmas music, and even there's like Halloween has its own songs, uh, even the 4th of July in a way has its own songs, right? Because there's lots of patriotic songs, songs that kind of celebrate being an American or living in America or what America is all about. And of course, you have the national anthem, the Star Spangled Banner. And I always mess that up. I get a little tongue-tied, so I'm glad I nailed that. Uh, <laughs> And we have the national anthem, and, we, celeb- and we, uh, we hear that, and we celebrate that. And if you go to a fireworks show, a lot of times there's music playing a lot of these patriotic songs. And some of the patriotic songs can be a little cheesy, a little hokey. Um, but the national anthem obviously has a special place in our hearts. 
And if you ever go to like a ball game, you'll see some people very much, they're focused when the national anthem plays, but some people are trying to balance a drink and a hot dog and figure out where can I set it down so I can take off my hat, or where's our seats, or we're missing a kid, where'd he go? Um, and you're focused on so many other things, right? We, we don't really engage with the national anthem necessarily in a, in a very reverent or emotional way all the time. Um, but for some people, during certain times, at certain contexts, uh, in certain positions of life, the national anthem hits a little different than it might hit for like a nine-year-old at a ball game, right? It, it hits a little deeper. For instance, if you're a veteran, right, the national anthem is going to carry a lot more weight to you. Those words and the meanings are going to draw a lot of feelings and emotions and thoughts. You might think of sacrifices that you've made or sacrifices that others you served alongside made. And so the national anthem is going to carry a lot more meaning for you than maybe just an average other person. Uh, also, maybe an immigrant who's gaining their citizenship at their nationalization ceremony, they played the national anthem. Uh, we went on a trip to New York and went to Ellis Island, and there was a really cool you know, museum and exhibit. And at one point, you can watch um, some video clips from various nationalization ceremonies. And you see all these people from around the world just feeling incredibly emotional about that experience and that opportunity right, to um, become a citizen here. And so I imagine when they're hearing the national anthem during that ceremony, it probably means a lot more to them in that moment than it ever meant or maybe will ever mean again because of those trials they went through, that journey they went to to get there. And so people engage in a powerful way with that song because of the memories and the feelings and emotions that it draws. The Psalms are meant to serve for us as Christians, as believers, in a similar way. It's meant to draw up our memories of when God was faithful and maybe the hardships we've gone through that God walked with us through, uh, the emotions that spring up and the occasions um, that take place. And for the Jewish people, a lot of the Psalms were actually used for holidays, like I said. We've got patriotic songs that we uh, play a lot during Fourth of July. We've got Christmas songs that we play during Christmas time. And they would uh, sing many of these psalms during uh, special occasions, during special festivals. And a lot of times when they're maybe on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem or to the temple, during their walk, during their travels, instead of singing the wheels on the bus go round and round, they would sing these psalms, right? As, they are, as they're thinking about this journey they're going on, as they're thinking about going to go worship God and, and have this experience of intimacy with him at his temple and worship, or during the festival as they're reflecting on God's goodness, because that's usually what most of their festivals were about, reflecting of the way that God had provided for them in the past and still does. They would sing these psalms that were written particularly for this purpose of celebrating God's goodness during these festivals. And so there's this engagement in that kind of way. And so today as we're looking at a psalm that kind of captures the emotion of excitement, and we're looking at a psalm that is capturing this idea of celebration. Um, I want us to remember that, that it is meant for occasions of celebration, but it's also meant to engage with us emotionally. And because last week I said we are emotional beings. I think we all know that. But if you read the Bible, God is an emotional being. We have emotions because God imprinted his emotions on us. Now, we don't always handle our emotions in the most healthy way, but um, God does. 
And the Psalms are a great model for us to know how to handle those emotions and to celebrate or observe those occasions in a, in a really um, significant and powerful way. And so I really want us to think about that engage, engaging emotionally in our faith, right? I really want us to think about that, especially in the context of things being exciting. And I, I think there's a really neat story in the Bible about King David that kind of communicates just what God is looking for when he's looking for us to really emotionally, in an authentic and genuinely way, engage with him. Um, at this point in history of Israel, this, this story takes place in 2 Samuel 6, um, but at this point in Israel's history, they have uh, conquered the promised land. They've established a kingdom, and King David, probably the most famous uh, Israeli king after Jesus, uh, was established. Um, he realized that they needed the Ark of the Covenant back. Now, if you don't know what the Ark of the Covenant, it's just, for all intents and purposes, it's this big holy chest where God's presence dwelled. Basically, the ways in which God kind of manifested himself during that time and related to his people was through his presence here. And, you know, he would bless people and curse people kind of through the, the parameters of this chest. And, and that's all you need to know, that it's super important to God's people, and, and it's where his presence really dwelt. Well, for a long time, this, this chest, the Ark of the Covenant, ended up in the possession of God's enemies or Israel's enemies, the Philistines. It ended up in the possession of some village who kind of disrespected it, and so God kind of cursed them, and so they were like, eee, send it away. And it ended up in some guy's barn out in the country, just this guy all by himself. And so King David and uh, the Israel people were like, we need to bring the Ark of the Covenant back home. It needs to be with God's people. It needs to be at the center of our country, our nation, in Jerusalem. It needs to be near the priests and the kings. So we need to go get it. So David grabs a crew, and they go out to this guy's barn, and they collect the Ark of the Covenant, and they're bringing it back home. And all of Israel, all of Jerusalem is ecstatic. They're so excited that the Ark of the Covenant is coming back. It's as if you've had a family member that you love who's been gone for months and years overseas, and they're finally coming home, right? If you've ever experienced that, for a week or two, there's like a buzz in the air of excitement in the home that you're going to get to see this loved one again after so long. And you probably go to the airport, and you're going to have a sign, and you're going to have balloons, and you're going to be really excited to greet them. Maybe you cry tears of joy, or maybe you jump up and down giddy. But either way, you're just excited, and you take them home, you're going to go grab a big dinner, maybe go out to eat somewhere, maybe cook a big meal at home, maybe invite other friends and family over to see them because you're just so excited that they're back. This is kind of what King David and Israel were feeling. They're just so excited that he's back. And so, much like we would do, they had a feast, right? They took the Ark of the Covenant, and they marched it through the streets, and they had a parade, and it was really exciting, and there was music, and there was dancing, and King David led the way down the street, marching this ark, and he started dancing. The man got down. He got down and dirty. He was grooving. He was, he was grooving so much, he took his pants off, and he took his shirt off, and he was just down to essentially what, like, maybe wearing basketball shorts, all right? And he's partying, and he's dancing, because he's just so excited that the Ark of the Covenant's back. Now, some people were like, whoa, look at our king. This is awesome. That's, now, that's how you celebrate, right? But some people looked at him and went, he's the king. He should carry himself with more respect and more dignity. That's below him. He shouldn't be behaving this way. And in fact, one of the people, the detractors, was David's wife. 
She was like, what are you doing? Don't do that. Which I can imagine a lot of men here, if you were to just like strip your clothes off and dance down the street, your wives would be like, I don't know him. We're not married. Uh, <laughs> but King David didn't care. He didn't care what people, that people liked it. He didn't care that people hated it. He didn't care because the only person he cared about was what God thought. He was just concerned with expressing himself before the Lord. He said, I don't care if I'm undignified in this manner, as long as God knows how much I love him, how excited I am that the ark is back and that his presence is with us, and he just wanted to celebrate however, however he could. And so as we're looking at the psalm today, we're going to learn a lot about celebration, what it means to celebrate, maybe the um, mindset we should have in the act of celebration. But not all celebration has to look like David. That's not the point. The Bible is celebrating what David's doing because it was authentic. It was real. He wasn't faking it. He wasn't dancing to make God think, you know, that he liked it and he was happy. He wasn't trying to impress anybody uh, in Jerusalem. He was just doing what was authentic and real. And so that's what we need to keep in mind. The psalm's going to show us a lot of things, but a lot of us will express that excitement and that celebration in different ways. But as long as we're kind of keeping in line with what the psalm is teaching us about celebration, I think we can really enhance our worship life, our prayer life, and our relationship with God uh, through the act of celebration. Um, So with that, let's look. We're at Psalm 100. I probably should have gave you a heads up if you want to turn there, but we're on Psalm 100, 100. And it's a really short psalm, and I, I picked it just because I like... We can easily read it from front to back real quick, but there's just a lot of like little nuggets in there. And so we're going to see that even just in a little short poem, a little short song, that a lot can be communicated. So I'm going to start on verse 1, Psalm 100. It says, Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people the sheep of his pasture, and enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name, for the Lord is good and his love endures forever. All right, like I said, many, uh, this would have been uh, sung by God's people, maybe on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem in the temple, or it might have been sung during worship services, during the festival, while they're celebrating. Um, And so we're going to kind of look at this and and see what it's kind of teaching us about celebration. Uh, In the first two verses, I kind of want us to notice that there's a call to worship. There's, it's a kind of a command, a command to celebrate God, to sing about him, to acknowledge his greatness, to worship him and praise him. We're being commanded to do that, which is kind of weird, right? To be commanded to celebrate, be commanded to get excited. Um, but that's kind of the interesting thing about us. As, as a, in a fallen, broken world, a lot of times things that are good for us and, and that maybe we should even be excited to do, we need to be told to do. We need to be reminded to do because as broken people, we just don't naturally want to do it. In fact, I think many of us have experience where even if you want to be happy, you can't help but focus on the negative at times. You kind of just zero in on what's negative. And so God here is like, I know that's your tendency. I know that's what you want to do. So I'm going to tell you, you need to celebrate. I'm going to command you. And there's a lot of things. I, I mean, I would argue that all of God's commands for us are good for us, right? They're healthy for us. But I think there's some that are like even more obvious. Um, does anybody here want to work nonstop 
and never take a break and just keep your nose to the grindstone and never rest, never sleep, never take a vacation. No, nobody wants to do that. But man, a lot of us cannot help ourselves and we just keep going. And yet God gave us a command to rest. Isn't that weird that God had to give us a command to pause and take a break, right? Mind you, he wants us to spend that time with him, but he knew in our broken state that we couldn't stop and rest. Even God stopped and rested, right? But we couldn't do it. Another command that God gives us is to be fruitful, right? To make babies, <laughs> to build community, um, to develop friendships, um, to be fruitful and multiply. God commanded us to do that. Why? That seems like that should just be a natural thing as the human race that we would want to do, right? That's just something that people desire and, and, and want. But as broken people, apparently God felt it necessary to command us to do it, right? And in the same way, God is commanding us to celebrate. And we don't just see it here as a call to worship at the beginning of Psalms. We see even God establishing those festivals that we talked about. That wasn't Israel going, you know, it'd be neat. God was really good to us. Why don't we celebrate him some and have festivals? No, God in his word said, hey, so when this comes around, I want you all to pause. I want you to stop working. And I want you to actually enjoy all that work you did in the ways that I've provided for you. Um, we can see an example of this in Deuteronomy, uh, let's see, 16, if you want to turn to that with me. There's an example here of God establishing a festival. And I, and, I mean, he's commanding them to celebrate it. But when you read about it, it sounds awesome. It sounds really good. Why would God need to command God's people to do something good? And so in verse 13, chapter 16 of Deuteronomy, verse 13, it says, Celebrate the festival of tabernacles for seven days after you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Be joyful at your festival. He had to tell them, like, this isn't your party. You can't cry if you want to. This is my party, and I want you to ha be happy and enjoy yourself. All right, you, your sons and daughters, your male and female servants, the Levites, the foreigners, the fatherless, the widows who live in your town. He's like, I don't care. I don't even care if they helped you grow the crops. Everyone gets to stop. Everyone gets to enjoy. Everyone gets to party. All right, and then verse 15, for seven days celebrate the festival to the Lord your God at the place the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. So let me give a little bit of context for this particular festival. It's called the Festival of the Tabernacles because the tabernacle is a really large, sturdy tent. And it's called the Festival of the Tabernacles because for 40 years, while uh, the Jewish people, after they were uh, freed from Egypt, they wandered the wilderness and the desert for 40 years. And so they would pop these tabernacles up, these tents up, and then after a while, they would pack them back up, move around, and then pop them up somewhere else, and then pack them up and move around and pop them up again. And so the Festival of the Tabernacle is to remind them of this time, to celebrate this time when they lived in the wilderness and God provided for them. Because they couldn't grow cops, crops. If you're just constantly picking yourself up and moving around, there's no time to grow crops and things like that. You can't really settle and establish yourself. If you're moving around all that time, you really do have to just depend on God. And you can read story after story of their time in the wilderness. God provided water for them. God provided manna from heaven, this like bread-like substance that, that would just appear on the ground in the morning. God provided quail, which if you've had quail, it's really good, uh, very delicious. And so God was providing in all of these really incredible ways. But every morning, 
They didn't know. They didn't know if they would have it. They were having to live by faith every single day and receive the goodness that God gave them. And so this festival was so that in perpetuity, year after year after year, the people wouldn't forget how God had provided for them during that time in the wilderness, how they had to live, um, live on faith, but that God provided abundantly during that time they were there. But if you, you know, if you were following along and paying attention when we read Deuteronomy 16, uh, it says that, he's, that the point of the festival is also to celebrate the harvest that they currently brought in. So on the one hand, it's celebrating what happened in the past. And maybe there, this is 100, 200 years later, you're like, I don't know what that was. That, that seems so distant, right? It's hard for us to even wrap our minds around like the Revolutionary uh, War here in America. Um, you're, you're so separated and detached. Well, in the same way, they could be really separated and detached. But the festival isn't just about celebrating the past. It's about celebrating the harvest that God had given them that, that year, that day. They just brought in the harvest. They had just finished collecting it. And so they're celebrating God's faithfulness even that day. So in the past and today. And I like it that it says, um, and in all the hard work of your hands kind of celebrating the partnership that, yeah, there is a bit of responsibility that you're provided for. You didn't just walk out into the field and uh, find a bunch of crops grown, right? Um, And so there is a bit of also celebrating the partnership that they experienced. These seem like things that people should naturally want to celebrate. Whoa, we just got a huge harvest. Let's enjoy the labor and the work and the way that uh, all this food's been provided for us by God seems like a natural thing you'd want to celebrate, and yet God's having to command them to celebrate it. He's having to establish these things for them. And so in that context, when we kind of think about our broken nature and how this is actually a trend for God trying to make us enjoy life and enjoy his blessings and reflect on those things, um, it makes sense why the psalm would need to even start with, all right, everybody, get up. Let's enjoy what God has blessed us with. Let's celebrate that. Moving further down in Psalm 100 on verse 3, the emphasis on here is why we celebrate. Why should we celebrate? And the reason that the psalm gives us is because we belong to God. We are his possession. We are his people. Now, I think if you haven't been saved by Jesus, you don't have a relationship with God in that way, that must sound bizarre and weird. There's nothing to celebrate being someone else's possession. Right? But if you have experienced uh, the saving grace of Jesus, you know that comfort that comes with being God's beloved, being his possession. You know what it feels like that your Lord, your heavenly Father, despite your sin, despite the mistakes of your past and, and all the ways that you've kind of rejected him and, and hurt that relationship or hurt yourself or, or, or hurt your relationship with others, that he still loves you that God will still fight for you no matter how many times you screw up, how many times you reject him, that he's still going to try to draw you in and fight for you. There's incredible comfort there in being God's possession, in belonging to him when you've really experienced that grace. And so that's kind of what the psalm is kind of encouraging us. A reason we need to be celebrating is because we belong to God. I think a lot of love songs that are about unrequited love of, you know, 
you want to be in love or you want to be with somebody and they're not returning um, those emotions or that feeling back towards you. They, they, the songs sing about needing somebody or um, wishing that somebody would care about them or wishing somebody would fight f- to be with them no matter what the struggle looks like or what comes their way. So many love songs convey that idea, and I think that's just a natural thing that's built in us. We desire to be uh, wanted and to belong to somebody. And so we're kind of seeing that here in the psalm, this idea of belonging. But it's not just about us celebrating that we belong to God. God also celebrates that we belong to him. God is a celebrator too in this way. And we can see this in Luke 15, 8 through 10. Jesus is telling a parable and he's trying to teach his disciples uh, in this instance about just how much God values his people, how much he values each one of us. And it goes this way. Suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and say, rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. We're all broken. We're all sinners. And when God saves us, does he say, all right, human, scurry along, you're welcome. No, it tells us that he celebrates. He goes, my child is restored to me. My, my daughter has been redeemed. My son has been saved, and I'm so excited. I'm going to make all the angels party alongside me. All right, there's partying in heaven. There's music, there's dancing, and they're celebrating that we now belong to him. So on the one hand, Psalm is saying, celebrate because you belong to God. But on the other hand, God's saying, I'm celebrating. Join with me because you belong to me. And this is a big motivation for our celebration. No matter when times are hard or times are bad, things aren't going your way, it doesn't change the fact that you belong to God, and that's always something worth celebrating. And then finally, in verses 4 and 5, I think we see uh, another uh, emphasis on our motivation for celebrating, and that's on focusing on God's love and his mercy, his love and mercy. The the psalm of celebration kind of wraps up talking and emphasizing God's love and mercy. And that's actually something we talked about last week when we talked about laments. Most laments actually kind of rest on this final idea that God loves us and that he is merciful to us, that he is filled with love and mercy. Now in a lament, it's kind of a, it's kind of like a resolve. It's like a, a rock you're clinging to in the storm, right? But then in the, in the, the psalm of celebration, it's more of like the reason why you're filled with energy. It's the thing that kind of carries you and lifts you, right? And it's kind of neat to see that through line of God's love and mercy being in both the lament and the sadness and the anger and frustration, but also being in the happiness, the excitement, and the celebration. That our lament should transform from, uh, from what it is into celebration, We aren't meant to stay in the lament. I was talking to somebody last week after my sermon on the lament, and we talked about how, yeah, God many times calls us into the desert, right? Many times we enter a time of lament, but we're not meant to build a house there 
and live there in the desert. We're never called to just stay in the desert always. Eventually, that lament needs to transform into something else. It needs to transform into celebration. There's this really neat story in the book of Nehemiah. If you want to turn there and read along in uh, chapter 8 of Nehemiah. And just to give you kind of context in the timeline, because we've been hopping all throughout the Bible in different areas of it. This takes place way later in Israel's history. This is you know, I mean, they've been freed from Egypt. They've gone through the Exodus. They've established their kingdom. This is way after King David and King Solomon. This is after many, many kings when, in fact, Israel had started spiraling out of control into idolatry and just being very awful for hundreds of years. And for hundreds of years, God warned them, hey, if you don't get your act together, I'm going to have to discipline you. And so eventually he does. He sends the nation of Babylon in to conquer uh, Israel and to scoop up all the people and basically sprinkle them throughout the uh, nation, the empire of Babylon. And in the process, destroys the temple and uh, ruins Jerusalem. Well, after decades and decades of being in exile in Babylon, God eventually uh, relinquishes it and allows them to slowly start res- uh, returning to Israel. Mind you, I'm giving you like a bird's eye view on this story. There's a lot more geopolitical ways in which God worked. But the main thing you need to know is they've been in exile for a really long time, and they've made their way back to Jerusalem finally. And when they arrive, they see that it's been ransacked, that the walls have been destroyed, um, the city's been destroyed, and that the temple is just completely wiped off the face of the earth. It's not there anymore. And so they were excited to return home, but immediately saw that everything that they valued and that was important to them um, in the context of how their faith and everything worked then was gone. So they roll up their sleeves and they start building. They start building the wall around Jerusalem again for protection. They start restoring their homes and they start rebuilding the temple. And it's, it's going okay, all right? It's going okay. And the priest at the time, Ezra, is like, you know what we need to do? We need to pause and we need to read God's word again. We need to read the law, capital L, law, which is the first five books of the Bible. We need to read Genesis and Exodus and remember who we are as a people. We need to read Deuteronomy uh, Deuteronomy and see what God is calling us to, what kind of people God is calling us to be. Uh, What does it mean to be a light for the world as God's people? You know, we need to reread the law and rediscover who we are. And so Ezra and Nehemiah gather all of God's people in Jerusalem at that time, and they're going to read the word of God. And this is the first time in decades that many of them have heard, right? They didn't have Bibles in their pockets like we do. Um, And in fact, when Babylon uh, captured them, they didn't want them to keep practicing their faith. They wanted them to assimilate. They didn't want them to bring any of their scriptures with them or anything like that. And so this is a big moment where God's people are getting to hear God's word again for the first time. So we're going to start on chapter 8, verse 8. It says this, they read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving meaning so that the people understood what was being read. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks, and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
The Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. So that's a really interesting story because the people are obviously lamenting and sad that they've gone this many years, this many decades without hearing God's word. And it probably convicted them as they realized, whoa, we have not been following this. We have not been living as God's people. We've totally forgotten who we are. And and that was probably shocking for them and disheartening for them. And so it says during the reading of it all, they just cried and cried and cried. But after they were done, they're still weeping. And Nehemiah and Ezra is like, no, 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 no. We don't have it right. You have God's word now. You're not weeping that you don't have it anymore. You have it now. It's as if a beloved family member came home, like we talked about earlier. And instead of crying tears of joy or being excited, you just started mourning and lamenting that they've been gone for so long. When the person is like, whoa, don't be crying. Like, I'm here now. Like, let's have fun. Let's, let's go do an adventure. Let's chat. Let's talk. There's, this isn't a time to mourn. This is a time to celebrate. And that's what Ezra and Nehemiah are pointing out to the people. You have God's word now. You can, you can study it all you want. You can start really living in your identity and recapturing what your identity in God looks like. You can start living out the law and, and being a light to the world again. This isn't a time to lament. This is a time to celebrate. Because a lot of times we can kind of confuse those. I think this is a great story because it shows this, this was a time for celebration, but they were confusing it. They were thinking it was a time for lament um, when in fact it wasn't. When you're experiencing God's love, God's mercy, God's blessings like they are, it's a time to celebrate, which is why in the laments they always end on reminding themselves of God's love and mercy. And it's why even in the celebrations, They spend half the psalm celebrating God's love and his mercy, uh, how, how his love endures forever, how his faithfulness continues on, because it's something that needs to be reminded in order that they can know that this is a time for celebrating. And so I I hope we see today kind of the ways in which Psalm 100 kind of shows us the attitude we need when it comes to celebrating. And last week, I said that God is the God of the lament. He's a God who laments for his broken and fallen children. He's a God who laments our sin and how we've been separated from him. But he's also the God of celebration. He's the God who celebrates when his his children have been redeemed and restored to him. He's the God who has the angels party in heaven in celebration. And there's, and there's two really neat metaphors that the Bible uses, that God uses over and over, to kind of communicate what does celebrating uh, God look like. One of them is a wedding. At a wedding, who do we celebrate? Do you celebrate all the guests and all the people who are there to observe? Or are you celebrating the bride and you're celebrating the groom? Right? You're celebrating them, the people who are committing themselves in love, in a union, who are getting married. Right, Those are the ones that you're there to celebrate. Uh, at my wedding, um, I always tell Elizabeth that when, whenever we're going to another wedding, I'm like, I'm excited for their wedding and all, but I've already been to the best wedding I've already been to the best reception because that was our reception because it had all of our favorite people there. It had all of our favorite foods. 
It had all my favorite desserts and things like that. It had all of our favorite songs that we got to pick. It was the best wedding reception for us because it was about our love. It was about our time. And what made that wedding reception the best of all was because in that moment, we had just finished committing our lives to each other. And I knew that I had locked down Elizabeth Holmes. I knew it. You know, I was like, she's mine. I don't have to worry. I don't have to stress. I don't have, to, I don't have a care in the world anymore because I've done it. I locked her down. She's mine. I was just filled with comfort, you know? It's like one of those things where I can be as dumb as I want on the dance floor right now because I'm just so happy. I'm just so happy. Everything has gone my way. That's how God wants us to think about celebrating him. We are invited to the wedding feast of the bridegroom. And you know what's really cool? We're the bride. His church is the bride, and we're called to celebrate, to feast, to sing, and to dance in celebration like it's a wedding. Um, another way that, that God calls us to celebrate is to celebrate like we're celebrating a victory. When you go to a big sports event, are you celebrating the crowd and the fans? No, you're celebrating the team. You're celebrating the players. When they, they bring home a victory, it was them who practiced all week long. It was them who prepared. It's them who strived and fought tooth and nail to get that victory. They're the ones who you're celebrating. But what's really neat is, as a fan, you know this feeling. You feel like you won. You're like, I had victory, even though you did nothing. You get to, they get to bring home the victory to your school or to your city, and you get to enjoy and celebrate in that right? You're jumping up and down, and you're, you're just excited because they've brought home a victory. Even though it was really their victory that was won, you get to experience it and enjoy it. In the same way, God has sent a champion, right? He sent Jesus into the battlefield to compete, to, to fight on our behalf. He, he conquered sin. He defeated death, and he's the one who's reigned victorious. He's the one given the crown um, and declared uh, victor and declared champion. But don't we feel like we've also got that victory? And a big reason why is because he shares the spoils with us. Every blessing, every awesome attribute, the eternal life and the glory that he has gained, as, as our champion is, as our victor, we get to celebrate and, exp and, and enjoy um, that victory. We get to delight in it. And I think those are two really cool ways that God kind of demonstrates what it means to celebrate and that feeling and that connection we have to him and why we get to celebrate um, so well. In Revelation 19, 6 through 9, what Jana read for the inspiration earlier, really uh, captures both of these ideas. Um, let me turn to that really quick because I want to read that one more time for us. In verse 6, it says, Then I heard the sound like a great mag magnet multitude, like the roar of rushing waters, like the loud peals of thunder shouting. You might be like, oh, some weird magical noise. No, it's the sound of a crowd cheering as loud as possible. If you've ever been in a stadium when an incredible play takes place and the whole stadium just erupts in roar, and it's like, <sighs> it's like it doesn't sound like people. It sounds like something else. And that's what they're describing right here. It's this crowd shouting and cheering. And it says, hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns right? It's this idea of a victor, a champion, someone who has um, conquered. And it says, verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory 
For the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel of the Lord said, Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. Isn't that cool? We get to celebrate with God, both in the uh, victory that he has, um, but also in the wedding feast that we're invited to. That I would argue we're not just invited as onlookers, but we're the ones getting to experience the groom's love. And so I hope today you saw a lot about what it means to celebrate, right? And I kind of want to make just one final kind of comment. Celebration, I mentioned this at the beginning, but celebration doesn't look the same for everyone. Not everyone is called to celebrate God with their shirts off dancing in the streets like David. And we see other examples of people celebrating where they're crying and they're face down before Jesus, maybe a leper after they've been healed. They too are celebrating. There's different ways we celebrate, and yet Psalm 100 shows us and kind of demonstrates kind of where our hearts should be, what we need to focus on, and how we can really engage emotionally with God in celebration. Like I mentioned, my wedding day, one of the best days of my life, I was celebrating. You would have found me on the dance floor, jumping up and down, dancing, all sweaty, lots of loud, energetic emotions. But one of the most other exciting days of my life was when our newborn, Lucy, was born recently. And in that day, we sat quietly in a cold hospital, eating bland food, not nearly as exciting as all that other food we ate at our wedding. But we were just beaming, just staring at her in the quiet, just staring at our newborn. And in both situations, I would describe myself as same amount of excitement, same amount of celebration, even though it was manifesting itself very differently. And so it doesn't matter how we're manifesting it. It's, is it real? Is it genuine? And is it focusing on the things that Psalm 100 shows us? Are we, are we being convicted in following God's command to celebrate because it's healthy for us? And is it being authentic? Are we doing it because we belong to God? Are we joining in and celebrating with God because he's excited that we belong to him? And are we delighting in his love and mercy? Is that being the through line that carries us, whether it's through the sad, angry moments, or the happy, exciting moments, or even just the boring moments? Are we being reminded and focusing on his love and mercy to carry us through so we can continue to celebrate? And so that's how I want us to be motivated in our celebration, to show our excitement for the Lord, to really engage with him and model uh, those emotional interactions and occasions on this psalm. Let's bask in the victory of Christ. Let's feast in the wedding of the Lamb. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your mercy, for your love. Thank you so much that we belong to you. Thank you so much that you instruct us in celebrating you. We pray, Lord, that we would celebrate, that we would see your glory for what it truly is, that we could really embrace and, and experience that in a really powerful way so that it grows our faith, so that we can authentically engage with you in a really powerful way. We just lift this up in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.